continuing with 1 Peter. It's, it's a great book. Like I said last week, I love 1 Peter because he's nice and blunt and to the point, which I like that. Not so much subtlety. Last week he told us to be holy because God's holy and he told us to love one another. This week we continue into chapter 2 and he continues on very much the same theme. So 1 Peter 2, 1 to 6. So put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that it may grow that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I saw that last night. Little Micah saw a bottle full of milk walk past and his face had opened up and his arms went out and then he was holding it and he was pulling it and he, he was sucking already and the bottle wasn't anywhere near his mouth. And it just really hit me that that's what this scripture is talking about. We should be like that. We should be saying, God, I need your word, your truth and your spiritual milk. And we should be that keen to get it that we're almost feeding on it before it starts. That desire, that that's what this is talking about because he needs that to grow, to fulfil his potential, to become what he can be. If he doesn't have it, what's going to happen to him? Not good. And we're the same spiritually. If we don't get that spiritual milk, we will wither up, become stunted, stay as babies. We have to crave that spiritual milk. So that's point number one for today. I just really encourage you to crave God's word, to crave what God has for you, to crave seeking his spirit, to take that extra moment, to say, God, feed me. God, what do you have for me? To actually listen and receive, it's just so important. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I reckon there's half a dozen sermons in there, but we're going to have to move forward quickly and do some more. That quote there is from Isaiah 28 about placing a cornerstone. And the, the, the situation back in Isaiah, I had a look, was that he's talking to rulers who are basically saying, we are self-sufficient, we are the rulers, we don't answer to anyone. Hey, man hasn't changed, have we? Have you ever heard anyone say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an independent person, I'm me, I don't answer to anyone? I answer to myself. And I will be the judge of what I do. I'm not, I've not hurting one, so I'm good. I'm right. Same situation. And these rulers say, no, we're fine. And God's basically saying to them, no, I've got a cornerstone. And I'm going to measure you against that cornerstone. I don't know if you understand the concept of a cornerstone, but a building has to start somewhere and it has to be surveyed from some point. So what they used to do is they used to get the most bestest, perfectest, normally big rock they couldn't put in the corner. Then every line, you know, you run a string line, it has to be straight, so you're building to be straight. And that would line up with the cornerstone. So that cornerstone had to be in the right spot, it had to be the right shape, had to be the right size. Then every other block was plotted from that stone. 
So it's not an unimportant stone. If it's wrong, you end up with a wonky building. If it's wrong, you end up with a building in those days. They didn't have all the engineers and people to do the sums. You end up with a building that was very likely to be unsafe. So what it's saying is that God has laid a cornerstone and that Christ is the cornerstone. So let's have a little bit more look at that through Scripture. In Job 38, 1-6, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk into? Or who laid its cornerstone? What God is saying is, Job's been questioning God. And God's saying to Job, I actually laid the foundations of the earth and I put in a cornerstone and I measured it from that stone. Why are you questioning? Why are you saying to me, why is this happening? Why is that right? Why are they? Because you don't know what the foundation is. But I laid that stone. I have the right to measure. I have the right to judge. I have the right to assess. I love that line. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? How many times at work do you wish to say that to somebody? Who comes into my office to criticise without knowledge? Who comes to me and has all these great suggestions based on absolute, or actually often criticism, based on wrong information because you don't know the information and you probably can't understand it and have it anyway? That's just the reality of, again, the state of man, isn't it? How often we say, God, why, 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 when the answer is God says, I laid the foundation to this earth, I set the cornerstone in the place, and what's happening aligns with the foundation. So it's, it's there. God set the foundation so all standards come from him. And it cannot be moved. When you build a building, can you go and say, no, I don't like that cornerstone, I'll move it? That's what we often want to do, isn't it? We want to change. Yeah, just, just adjust a bit. But that cornerstone's set and cannot be moved. And then we see when Christ came, he came and he was the full revelation of the cornerstone. He was the fulfilment of the prophet of Isaiah. God said, I will lay in Zion a cornerstone. And Christ was that cornerstone. And what happened then was, in the past they had some knowledge, but in Christ we could actually see the measure. We could understand the measure. We could measure ourselves, not always such a good thing to do, against the cornerstone. That's why it says, be holy as I am holy. We should be imitating Christ as he moved and lived. We should be setting ourselves against that cornerstone. So if a cornerstone gives direction and lays foundations, that's why we need to go after that spiritual milk. Because if you don't know where the cornerstone is and you pick a random stone, you're going to end up with a shocking building. If you spend your life saying, oh, I sort of see where the measurements are, but you get it wrong, you end up in a mess. We need to actually want that spiritual milk so we can know where God would have us set our foundations and our direction. 
so we can measure our life against the right cornerstone. Then we see in Ephesians 2, 19-22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see in this one, it just takes a little bit further, doesn't it? Jesus is a precious cornerstone. He's a chosen cornerstone. The word chosen means to be held in honour, to be prized. So God sent his prized son to be that cornerstone. These living stones are what we become. As we connect with Jesus, we become not only a stone in the temple, we become a priest, which is a really interesting concept. So we have sort of this duality. But I I believe basically what happens is Jesus is a living stone and as we touch him, we become a stone in that building, but we're also alive. He doesn't call us just to sit there. He calls us to be a living stone. So what is a living stone? It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because if you ever want to see something that's not really alive, what do you pick up? A rock. I can prod it, it's not going to move. I can hit it with a hammer, it's not going to hurt. I can do whatever I want with it and it really doesn't care because it doesn't even know what care is. Okay? It's a dead, inanimate object. But the whole concept here is slightly different. It's a stone, in other words, it's set in place and it's solid, but it has life and vitality. How I find that just so encouraging. When you think of Jesus, what is he? He's a rock, which means he's built at the corner of that building. He cannot be moved, he cannot be shifted, he cannot be taken out of alignment. He is there, he is solid, he is eternal, but he's living. So he's flexible and adjusting. Interesting sidelight. When the Israelites came into Cana, what was the Canaanite practice with the cornerstone? Does anyone know? It was human sacrifice. What they would do is when they laid a major building under the cornerstone, they would sacrifice either a child or an elderly person. I think it's a really bad idea personally. But they would sacrifice them and put them under the cornerstone because that was only one of their most sacred ceremonies. So isn't it interesting just the, the way man goes one way? Man, this stone is built on death. We're going to measure against this, this stone that's set literally in death where Jesus comes along and says, no, be measured against this stone that's set in life. This stone that's based on resurrection and eternity and certainty and hope, not on grief and sorrow. We see also that it's an honoured cornerstone. It's a preeminent cornerstone. Why do you honour the cornerstone? Because it has to be perfect. It has to be right. Because your whole existence and placement depends on it. Then we see we are being built into a spiritual temple. Christ predicted that he would raise up a new temple and that temple is him as the cornerstone and us as the 
flocks. So it's not made of local material. It's not a building you can go and look at. It's a universal building. God now literally dwells in the community of his people. We are collectively the house of God. It is spiritual because God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. So what does this mean? It means a really interesting combination of solidity and movement. It means that every one of you, if you're part of a temple, what do you not do randomly in any building? Try to move one of the blocks. Try to rip a block out. Because those blocks are built in it. They're part of the structure. So we are part of the structure of the church and the church universal. And as a royal priesthood, that image of the construction goes, and now we get a priesthood. In the old world, priests were part of a separate caste. In the Jewish world, they're the tribe of Aaron were priests. They were separate. But God against turning everything on its ear. He's saying, you are all priests. What was the difference between a priest and a normal person? Well, a priest and another person, I suppose. The priest could go into the presence of God. Only once a year at a special time for them, but they could be in the presence of God. They could serve at God's table. They could minister to God. They could minister to the people from God. That's now what we are. We are God's New Testament priests. So we're set apart, as were the sons of Aaron. And what are we set apart for? To serve God, but also to have access to God. Peter is speaking of what Christians are collectively. None of this is done alone. What good would a cornerstone and one block be? Not a building, guys. It's a derelict site. What we have is, we have to realise is, that we cannot do it alone. That every rock within the church rests on other blocks. It's supported by other blocks. Needs the other blocks around it so it can hold its place and do what it's supposed to do. But we are not in ourselves the total reality of God's temple. We are part of that temple. We are built into it. We are God's people. In 1 Peter 2, 7, 8, it then goes on. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay, it's also a stumbling block. Why is a cornerstone a stumbling block? I have discovered in life if I don't measure it, something's never out of place. Okay? What I'm saying there is that you only know something is wrong if you compare it to something that is right. I can build a building and say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to randomly place stones on the ground anywhere I like and just sort of stack them up. It's not going to work. Because to build a building, you have to measure. You have to align. Have you ever watched a stonemason building a wall and he gets out his little, don't know what it's called, whacker thing, and wax and takes a bit off the stone so it fits with the stones next to it? Some stones refuse to be shaped. 
Some stones just are wrong and they won't fit in the room. So what happens is the foundation's laid, the cornerstone's there, and when people see that, they say, no, I cannot accept God. I cannot be moral. Well, not I cannot be moral, but I will do what I want to do. I don't believe that I should abstain from any of those things because I think they're fun. It's only as we see the cornerstone that we realise the measurement. Each one of us at some stage was tripped up by the stumbling block and we had to be reborn. And doesn't it, it's really interesting, we had to be transformed, we had to be reshaped by the love of Jesus so we could be built into that. So again, we're a rough stone that's been shaped and made to fit the temple. Okay, if we move on now to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, when did you last proclaim God's excellencies? Isn't that a great term? As priests, that's what we're to do. We're to tell people how good God is, how excellent he is. And I like not just how excellent he is, but about all of his excellencies. Not a word I use often, I must admit. But about all the different ways God is perfect. So part of our job is to go out and proclaim, to be a priest, to tell people about God. We were now received his mercy. We need to pass on the mercy. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? It says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for us. Then it said, we receive that mercy freely. Now, if we are to be like Jesus and to resemble God's holiness, what do we want to do with that mercy? Say, God, I just need more. I want to keep it all for myself. God, the blood of Jesus, I'm so evil, there's obviously not enough for anyone after me. I need all there is. No, we need to take after God and say, God, freely you have given to me and I will do what you did. I will love and I will give and I will give freely. So I want to encourage you to give the love of God freely. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says, Or did you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so God's glory, so glorify God in your body. Sorry. Glorify God in your body. What that's saying is it's going back to the temple idea. This one's saying you're part of the temple, but your body also has to be part of the temple. So if your body's part of the temple, what should you put into it? The things of God, the glory of God. You should be willing to make your body a thing that serves God. Not just your mind, but your whole being. So what should we do? Our choice is then to serve God. Choose the right foundation. Live by faith. Measured against the cornerstone. Get rid of the useless things. No longer measure yourself against the useless things, but measure yourself against the cornerstone. And as we saw a couple of Months ago, we did a series on this sort of the, the things that God said that were unexpected. God's rules are different to the world's rules. 
God's rule of love is different to the world's rule of what? Rebellion. God's desire to have all people equal is, I don't care what they talk about equality in the world, it just doesn't happen. God wants us to treat each other with love and equality. There's just so many things that God wants and they're the measurements we have to make. It is no good saying, I lived a good life and taking ourselves as those ancient rulers did against the world's standards. I was nice to people. I respected my mother. You know, I, I, I did the basics. Like to party and do all the wrong things at times, but that's all right because the world says that's fine. No, we have to measure ourselves against God's standard. We are to live as a servant focused on God and the needs of other. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and it also says to focus on the race that God has set before you. And last in that little bit, where to view life as a way station, not an end point. Life is not the end of existence for you. Life is where you serve Jesus on the earth and wait to go to heaven. So you don't have to treat life like that is all there is because the good bit is yet to come. The good bit is yet to come. There's a place we're going to where all the sorrows and griefs and pains and annoyances and agonies and all the annoyingnesses, is that a word? It is now. All the annoyingnesses are passed away. There is a place and it's called heaven. So we need to live this life as part of a journey, not the journey itself. And that makes a huge difference. 1 Peter 2.11 and 12, just finishing our chapter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the pleasures of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're back to where we started in the last bit. Be holy because I am holy. But I want to question you then. Here's the challenge that I want to put to you that God put to me during the week, really. He said to me, if you were the only Christian that these people knew, what would their preconception of a Christian be? If you were the only Christian they'd ever met, what would their image, their prototype of a Christian be? That's a, that's a nasty question, isn't it? Because so many people see the Christian as a hypocrite. And I'll tell you why, because when you read church history, there's been an awful lot of hypocrites. Lots of the people see the Christian as the judgmental person who is against everything, as the unfun person, as the boring person. And I'll tell you what, as you read church history, there are lots of them too. So the world gains a view of Christ from how they see you. So my challenge to you today is, when they look at you, what do they see? Do they see love and caring and giving and joy and peace? Or do they see grumpiness and anger and judgmentalism? And you should. If I ask them what the first words you're going to say, uh, do they expect to say, you mustn't, you shouldn't? Are you, is that what they're going to say? Are they going to see Christians as negative people? I want to tell you today, they should see us so positive. They should see us as people who have hope. 
People who have joy. People who have an expectation. People who know they have a future. People who know how to enjoy themselves without making themselves sick the next day. People who know how to party and do it in the right way. That's what we should be and that's how the world should see us. So I want to challenge you today to touch Jesus with your heart, to become a living stone more and more in that temple and to be living the life that Jesus would have you live. And just leave you again. I'm going to challenge you again. If you were the only Christian people knew, how would they describe a Christian? I hope I've given you a happy week. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you do help us to, to live right before you. I pray, Father, you do help us to measure ourselves against the right cornerstone. That we will know, believe, love and live as you would have us. That we will be you and attest me to you alive before men. I pray you help us, Lord God, to live lives without envy, without slander, without malice, without all those things that you would not have us do. Jesus. Name.